Listener Production. Hello, Tom Tilly and Annika Smethurst with you for this episode of The Briefing, and we're talking about nuclear power in Japan. Now, 11 years ago, a huge tsunami hit Japan. Around 15,000 people died, and gigantic waves swamped a nuclear power facility in the area called Fukushima. The earthquake that shook the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant was the most powerful to strike Japan since records began. A China syndrome meltdown and radiation leaks are feared. At 3.35 p.m., the biggest of the waves struck. So Japan's nuclear power plants are becoming a major concern. The clock is ticking. There is a chance of a meltdown. So given what happened in 2011, you might be surprised to find out that Japan, which is an earthquake-prone country, is planning to expand nuclear power production again. Find out why and if they've learned any lessons from Fukushima in today's briefing. First, today's headlines. It is Tuesday, the 6th of September. Liz Truss will be the new British Prime Minister. Truss won the vote overnight to become Britain's 56th Prime Minister and the third woman in the role. So she beat her rival Rishi Shunak with a 57.4% vote. He got 42.6%. She'll replace Boris Johnson, who resigned in July after a string of scandals. And the pair will travel to Balmoral in Scotland to visit the Queen today. Johnson will tender his resignation. Truss will be appointed his successor. It's an honour to be elected as leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. She also paid tribute to Johnson. Boris, you got Brexit done. You crushed Jeremy Corbyn. You rolled out the vaccine and you stood up to Vladimir Putin. You were admired from Kiev to Carlisle. Not sure everyone in the UK feels that way. That's why he's not the Prime Minister anymore. I wonder how different she'll be. I believe she shares fairly similar politics. Will she just be a better behaved, less charismatic version of <laughs> Boris Johnson? Yeah, and maybe that's what they were looking for. Uh, for Boris's, uh, you know, successes, he also had a lot of personal flaws, which I think got him in trouble in the end, including those infamous parties he mm. held uh, during the COVID lockdown. So I'm sure that'll be a mistake she won't repeat. Yeah. And um, think about the Queen. Um, this is the 15th Prime Minister that she'll be appointing. She's outlasted many, many political leaders during her reign. Two men are still on the run in rural Canada after 10 people were stabbed to death and 15 were injured. Yeah, the attacks were in two remote Indigenous communities in Canada. They occurred Sunday night our time and the car the men were driving has since been spotted in a town called Regina, which is about 330 k south of where the stabbings happened. Unfortunately, the two males are still at large, this despite ongoing, relentless efforts through the night by both the RCMP and the Regina Police Service. That's Regina Police Chief Evan Bray. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau tweeted that the attacks in Saskatchewan are horrific and heartbreaking. I'm thinking of those who have lost their loved ones and of those who are injured. And local police say they're still not sure what the motive was. Former AFL Hall of Famer Wayne Carey has been stood down from his Channel 7 commentary role after being found with a bag of white powder at Perth's Burswood Casino last weekend. So the bag of powder dropped from his pocket onto a gaming table. Carey insists it was not a banned substance, but rather an anti-inflammatory he took with dinner. He's been issued with a two-year ban by Crown Resorts. 
He also works for Southern Cross Osterio, who are in the briefing, and Triple M, where he's been stood down from his commentary duties pending an internal investigation being conducted following that incident at Crown's Burswood Casino. And he dethrones the champion and is through to the quarterfinals. Oh, yes, that is the moment. Nick Kyrgios defeated world number one and reigning champion Daniil Medvedev in an amazing day for Australian tennis at the US Open yesterday. This was an incredible display of tennis from Kyrgios yesterday. He won in four sets. The first set was tough. It went to a tiebreaker. Then Kyrgios lapsed in concentration in the second set, and it was looking like, "Uh uh-oh, which way is this going to go? And then in the last two sets, he just absolutely brought it home over the Russian. I just feel like I'm playing for a lot more than myself. Just got a lot of people, a lot of support. And on the flip side, I got a lot of people doubting me and trying to bring me down all the time as well. Got a lot of motivation. Yeah, incredible match, Tom. We had it on in the office. That was Kyrgios, of course, speaking after his win. He now plays number 27 seed, Karen Kachanov, for a spot in the semi-finals. And while that was happening, fellow Aussie Isla Tomjanovic was beating Ludmilla Samsonova to also advance to the quarterfinals. Yeah, so this is the first time an Australian man and woman have been in the quarters at the same time since Pat Cash and Wendy Turnbull did it in 1984. Now, the thing about the Kyrgios game, it it was to me that it, it wasn't just a series of crazy, amazing shots. It was a a focused, highly tactical. Uh, very clean hitting match by Kyrgios. It was it was just incredible tennis. Yeah, and he didn't let it get to his head too. We know that sometimes uh, he gets quite emotional where either the crowd are for him or against him, as he said, but he was incredibly focused, so hopefully he can keep that going. Tracy Grimshaw is finishing up as the host of A Current Affair. It's been a big decision, huge actually, and before the gossip websites start telling you rubbish, I want you to know it's been my decision alone and I'm not being shoved out the door by the boys club because I'm too old. I'm not too old, I'm just a bit tired. That was Tracy telling her viewers at the end of last night's show on Nine. She's hosted the show for 17 years and will finish up in November. Yeah, so she's been working into the evenings that whole time. And before that, she was the co-host of Today, where she was working those really early starts. So she says she wants a break from that sort of daily commitment. And her boss, the head of news at Nine, Darren Wick, said she's one of the best interviewers in Australian television. And I think that's true. Many people were including myself, were reminded of that when she really took Scott Morrison to task during the last election. Yeah, she's incredible. And I think uh, her position doesn't always get a lot of immediate attention compared to other sort of Mm. big journalists or notable uh, personalities. But she's been such a consistent part of the Australian media landscape. And you just had to see some of the outpouring of uh, emotion with her announcement last night as evidence of that. All right, in just a moment, we're going to Japan to talk about them rebooting their nuclear program. The Japanese government is reviewing its nuclear energy policy. This is a touchy subject in Japan because of the Fukushima nuclear disaster caused by the 2011 tsunami. So we're going to find out why they're looking at moving back to nuclear energy and if they've learned anything from Fukushima. Dr. Carol Bond from RMIT is a political and social scientist with a focus on energy policy. Carol, thanks for joining us. What's prompted Japan's renewed interest in nuclear energy? Japan has a, like many uh, developed nations, a, a high demand for 
electricity and power to keep their economy uh, moving along. From what I understand, the war in Ukraine has cut off the uh, fossil fuel supplies that Japan relies upon for a portion of their electric generation. We all know that since Fukushima in 2011, that nuclear power became quite unpopular with the general population. And there has been a lot of pressure for government since 2011 to minimize the use of nuclear power. And a number of Japan's nuclear power fleet were put uh, in care and maintenance uh, and taken off grid uh, because of concerns of safety. But with the Ukraine war and the reduction of liquid natural gas and petroleum, there is a renewed interest in in energy sovereignty uh, that's not reliant on imports. Japan also has a very, very robust uh, set of goals to meet the 2050 climate change imperatives that came out of the Paris um, conference in 2015. They're very committed to a sustainability platform. There is a uh, coalition of 215 companies called the JCLP, the Japan Climate Leaders Partnership, and they are holding Japan accountable to meeting those 2030 and 2050 goals. And in order for them to do that, they need to reduce their reliance on fossil fuels. So you have pressures coming from two different directions. One from the the lack of imports that is readily available and the other which is imperative to decarbonize. And for better or for worse, nuclear power helps Japan solve both those problems. In terms of the public attitude towards energy in Japan at the moment, what's it like? Obviously, cost of power is going to change it for some people. But is there a reluctance to embrace nuclear technologies? I believe there is. The Japanese people have been moving very much towards, you know, this reduced use of nuclear for 11 years now since Fukushima. And there is there is a lack of trust in, in the safety of the nuclear fleet, although the International Energy Agency says that the nuclear fleet in Japan is just fine and has been built to the highest possible standards. As we saw with Fukushima, um, they didn't plan for a tsunami. And so they had all the kind of safety equipment in, in one spot. And so when, when that spot was flooded, they didn't have access to shut down that final set of reactors and that went into meltdown. Now, not every nuclear facility in Japan is close to a fault line or close to the ocean. Uh, so they, they did cite them very, very carefully as much as possible. Now, the current government in Japan has asked the JCLP, which is finalizing a two-year report on how they're going to meet their climate imperatives. And they said, please include nuclear as part of your analysis. So there's there's quite a bit of uh, marketing that's going to need to happen to the Japanese people in order for them to trust that it's okay for nuclear to come back online. So how bad was Fukushima? Um, at the time, there were you know headlines around the world about the exclusion zone and the, the potential environmental and health impacts. But in the wash-up, we know that no one died directly from the nuclear problem. So what actually happened? How bad was it really? Um, it was uh, the second worst nuclear disaster. Um, I think only Chernobyl was worse in terms of environmental damage. You had to evacuate um, so many people for such a long period of time and that they're still working on the cleanup. I mean, it's not it's not over. And, you know, and the Japanese government doesn't want to talk about it. 
the Fukushima Daiichi meltdown was one of the worst nuclear disasters and has had far-reaching consequences and will continue to need to be managed for decades. Up until that point, what was the feeling towards nuclear power in Japan? You know, this is a small country that doesn't Mm -hmm. have a lot of other options to make energy and in some ways had been held up as the poster child for nuclear energy. Absolutely. Um, So up until that point, nuclear energy was seen as safe, clean fuel that, you know, it was able to provide Japan's economic powerhouse, the power it needed to stay on top of its game in the international markets. Uh, You know, France is also very bullish on nuclear. Um, Germany and UK were as well. However, since Fukushima, both Germany and the UK are taking their nuclear fleet offline. They know that their their plants perhaps have the capacity to be compromised in some way, uh, especially with the prospect of war. So I think Japan's Fukushima disaster had a, a, a global effect on the nuclear sector. Um, now, France says they're, they're prepared for everything and anything, um, but the UK and, and Germany are saying, you know, we've learned from Fukushima and we're not, we're not going there anymore. Even though Japan was very bullish on, on their nuclear, I think you know, everybody had a major wake-up call with this, and, and there needs to be quite a bit more thought and confidence going into you know, the reopening of, of these plants should they decide to do so. But the decision hasn't been made yet. Right. So the government hasn't made the decision. The report hasn't been released. It's not finished. It will be released at the end of this year. Right now, the government's just letting the people know that there's a possibility we might do a reverse flip on on what's been the policy for the last 12 years. And in terms of the energy mix in Japan, uh, Mm -hmm. leading up to Fukushima, how dependent was the country on nuclear and what's filled that space now? What options have been available? So, um, The mix of energy in Japan has been largely oil and uh, liquid natural gas. They have a very small renewables footprint. Uh, They don't have land like we do in Australia. They can't build giant solar arrays. And because of the instability of the geology of the country, you can't really do offshore wind because if there was even a tremor, it could topple the tower. So they really don't have that option as well. Nuclear was about 25% of the mix. And then after Fukushima went down to 6%. And so now they're thinking about bringing it back up to 26 to 30%. One of the selling points that the government's using for this return to nuclear energy is no doubt the carbon emissions, that this is going to help reduce the carbon footprint. They talk about the next generation nuclear reactors being safer, uh, that they're not the sort of old reactors of the past. So I wondered, what is their carbon footprint like? Is it really bad? And would it help if they're just going to start up old reactors? Their carbon footprint is, is not much different than other developed nations on a per capita basis. They're further along in their commitments to the Paris uh, goals than Australia is, for example, or in the U.S. or China. They've been actually taking steps and towards towards that, but they have quite a ways to go. So that's the big selling point is, is it's going to help us reach our emissions targets. Japan wants to make sure that they've done their best um, for these climate imperatives, and that seems to be the driving factor, as well as economic stability. Japan is in the Northern Hemisphere, and of course, people get cold in the wintertime, um, and, and being able to heat homes and, and office buildings is also quite important. And do you think they're looking at building new nuclear plants, or is it just about restarting their existing plants? I think it's just about restarting the existing plants for now. Um, they have so much 
invested in the fuels of the future right now that it doesn't seem to me that they need, either need to build new uh, nuclear power plants mm. since they have quite a, a number that are just kind of in care and maintenance right now and just could be reopened. But I think that's a space to watch. I'm I'm not sure that they they had enough nuclear power plants to take up that that twenty percent of their their energy mix, and it's going to be a matter for the Japanese people and their government to decide, you know, in response to this JCLP report, how aggressively they want to add nuclear back into the mix. So, do you think they've learned much since Fukushima? Obviously, Japan is on a fault line; it's earthquake prone. Have they done much to make nuclear energy generation safer since then? For all that I've seen here, it seems like they have a very good understanding of what went wrong. Um, and they've mapped out the the vulnerabilities of each of the nuclear power plants that exist. And they realize that there are some the changes that need to be made in order to protect against the unforeseen. You know, the Fukushima instance was was the tsunami. They did they had a seawall, it wasn't high enough. Right. So, you know, they didn't expect a 40 meter wave. They were they were expecting a 20 meter wave. And that's that wasn't the right call. Um, So I do think that Japan has learned it from its mistakes and doesn't want to be the poster child of another mistake. Japan is a very much a shame honor culture and they would like to be honorable in the way that they power their country and are very keen not to make mistakes that they've already learned from. That was Dr. Carol Bond from RMIT. Interesting, Tom, whether this will not only trigger other countries, as you mentioned, to maybe return to nuclear energy, but there's a fight going on in Canberra about this. The opposition, despite not doing anything in government, have said they're open to the idea as a way of reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. What do you think? Yeah, well, I am a bit cynical that the opposition, you know, had all that time when they were in government to do something about this. Um, I think it's an interesting debate, and I I do think there's a lot of... um, well, there's an element of irrational fear about the the fallout from nuclear energy, but I think actually what the debate comes down to is a, an economic one, whether we've left it too late to make, you know, what would be a massive and very long-term investment in nuclear. It would take a long time to build these reactors mm-hmm. and whether it would come online fast enough given the um, improving efficiency and, and cost structures of renewable energy. Yeah, that does seem to be the argument against it. When we compare ourselves to some of those European countries, though, they do have the advantage of having already invested in nuclear technologies, but it seems we're a little bit behind the eight ball on that one and we're not going to get there in time. Okay, tomorrow on The Briefing, have you ever looked a serious criminal in the eye? Well, Gary Jubilant has, the former detective, has done a different kind of investigation understanding the true motives behind bad people. Listener.